Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 129 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Allosaurus rider. Golly, I started reading the Allosaurus, and it, you, you tricked me up, man. Yeah, well, who th- who would have thought that after all the excitement around Ixalan and finally getting to play dinosaurs and magic, the dinosaur, which would matter the most, actually already existed in Cold Snap. Uh, it was just sitting there waiting to be snapped in half, which uh, apparently this week it has been, as all anyone is talking about is this Allosaurus Rider Neoform deck popping off in Modern and winning games consistently on turn one, just the way Modern's meant to be played, right? Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say consistently. It's certainly higher than 10%, you know? Too like, consistently. You would say too consistently, right? Yes, there shouldn't be yeah, that many yeah. turn ones in Modern. It is really, really dumb. People mentioned how oh man it like why why didn't this crush the pt or whatever and well Couldn't. the war cards weren't legal yet so yep. we didn't we didn't work on them at all but yeah this neoform added to allosaurus rider summoner's pact chancellor of the tangle and uh eldritch evolution to make the deck consistent enough to actually put bristlebrand onto the battlefield you have a bunch of green cards your nourishing shoals are live and then you end up killing people with like Laboratory Maniac, Borborygmo, Seismic Assault, Lightning Storm, whatever you want, basically. Yeah, it doesn't matter once you've drawn your entire deck and have plenty of life. And it's turn one, so your opponent hasn't done anything. They're just sitting there helplessly as you draw your entire deck. I think it's an interesting thought experiment because we don't even know if this deck is good, right? Like, there's no guarantee this is actually a player and is going to be consistent enough to go forward and is going to stand up to people actually trying to beat it, although obviously you can't do anything if it wins on turn one but like how high does the percentage have to be of turn one wins before you're just like no this shouldn't be a part of our game and you're banning it regardless of whether it's actually a player in tournament formats like any amount of experience with this deck is net negative to some people so does that mean even if it's not winning you take care of it i don't know it's an interesting question i I will say that for all the ban talk we've had over the past few months which i think this MC kind of proved to be somewhat ridiculous as we first suspected. This is the one time where I'm like willing to consider it because there's actual gameplay concerns with not getting to take a turn of magic in modern. Like that's really problematic. Yeah, it's really stupid. I don't think anyone wants that experience. And we kind of had to deal with this a little bit before with Gorio's Vengeance. And Mm -hmm. I think that that ultimately proved to be a little too inconsistent because you only have you know, X amount of lootings and Gorio's Vengeances and Gristle Brands, but this has eight Allosaurus Riders with Summoner's Pact. You have eight ways to cash this thing in for a Gristle Brand in Neoform and Eldritch Evolution. All of these are green cards. You have two Spirit Guides, effectively, with Chancellor of the Tangle and Simeon Spirit Guide. Like, this deck is consistent, and 
I find it hard to believe that if you're killing people on turn one, you know, 10 or 20% of the time, that that is okay. It's just not. I'm right there with you. And I think it's also worth noting, even if it's a very thin one, there is a form of interaction you can take on your turn zero against the Gristle brand coming out of the graveyard, right? You can play Surgical Extraction. And certainly that's not the direction you want to push your format, but the fact that it exists is meaningful. Like, I think it changes the equation a little bit. Here, there's yeah, literally nothing you can do. Like, you just sit there and die. I mean, maybe like, can you mind break trap? I guess so. Like, that's about it. But it's very silly. Only, only if they summoners packed. Right, right. That's the only point of interaction. So yeah, you're, you're spot on. And uh, I don't know. I don't see this lasting all that long. It seems just bad to have around. But let's see how it shakes out. There, there's going to be at least a few tournaments with it, possibly including like the Invitational is kind of in range of being played with this. And I, I think there's going to be some SCG modern events before this gets sorted out in any fashion. So we'll have to see exactly what this does to the format, how widely played this is at the next big modern event. Yeah, that doesn't make me very happy about the state of things, but I mean, I, I guess it's whatever. Uh, I was I was kind of worried about like Celestial Kirin and Ugin's Conjurant, and I was going to write an article about that and all the different decks that you could put that combo into. But screw that, shelf it because this is this is the thing right now. Yeah, this is better. That being said, there is a lot of penetration in this set to. Eternal formats, both modern and legacy and vintage, actually. Uh, this is one of the more impactful sets f for the old formats that we've seen in quite some time, I think. Yeah, not not that surprising, I guess. I mean, this, this is definitely a high-impact set, but it's also one where there's a lot of weird stuff, and that tends to lead to things slotting in in like random modern decks like eight rack and I don't know things like Ugin's passive going in legacy or vintage decks like I totally get it yeah and I mean it's not only those cards which have a lot of power written on their face but we're seeing like a lot of Narset which is a card that both you and I looked at and we're like what does this ever do in any situation uh, it's actually proving to be pretty meaningful in Legacy of all places, where half the decks are based around Brainstorm. You can see why that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's kind of like the new version of Leovold in some ways, and it's got a little bit of card advantage tacked on, so that's nice. I think that card also has a chance in Modern. There's Gideons floating around a little bit in Legacy. If you go and look at the Legacy Challenge from this past weekend, all these cards are showing up in some numbers. So really interesting time for these Eternal formats, to be sure. Yeah, Narset I like a lot. I, I was testing Standard after I got back from the MC, just basically as much as possible. And uh, one of the lists that you sent me actually had two Narsets in your sideboard. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's actually really smart. I'm going to try that. And now I'm just like, okay, how do I get these main deck? Because these are very, very good. Yeah, they're much more meaningful than I expected at first. And it's, it's funny. I think a lot of this season... Uh, this early standard season has humbled my card assessments as always. I mean, every single top 10 we do, it's just like five days later, you're like, oh, this is completely wrong. And I miss so much stuff. And that's just the nature of trying to evaluate cards without playing them. And honestly, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't bother playing this game. If I could just sit down and tell you the 10 best cards every single time without fail, then it's not a very interesting game. Like it's obviously solved and it wouldn't hold my attention for very long. But the fact that magic humbles me over and over and over every single time I do card evaluation, it's a lot of fun. And that happened a lot in our limited set review that you and I did as well. We provided that to our patrons. 
uh, over on our Patreon page, you and I ranked every single card in limited. And now having played a bunch of sealed only, I haven't drafted yet, just because draft only just showed up on Arena and maybe is kind of terrible too. But <laughs> I, I have noticed that I ha- I have a lot of incorrect assessments of cards. Things like the big stupid flying white vehicle, I basically thought was unplayable. Nope, it's a bomb. Ashiox kind of great. So there's all these weird cards that I did not expect to be good that are really proving me wrong. Yeah, Ashiok ends up being really strong because it, it's three mana, relatively high loyalty, and there's a lot of proliferate. But if you just look at the card in a vacuum, you're just like, okay, mill someone for 20, sure, that is a thing that I could do, but is that necessarily going to win me the game? And, well, if you have proliferate stuff or a second copy of Ashiok or, like, a Tamiyo to rebuy it or you have Jace or something, like, it actually tag teams really well with a lot of cards in the set to actually become, like, this kind of frustrating win condition, actually. Yeah, I've been building these kind of, like, blue-black control decks with Aid the Fallen and uh, what's the weird that can return a a card from an instant from your graveyard? Like, mush those together with a couple of Ashioks and then you just kind of sit behind Ashiok and you can't lose. And there are a lot of board stalls in this format, to be sure. Like, things get bogged down pretty quickly. Um, Yeah, that's fair. So Ashiok plays well in that scenario. And that's why Parhelion has a use as well, where, you know, you've just amassed these ground armies and then, okay, well, now I have this incredible flying threat that's just going to end the game in two turns that finally is going to break through the stalemate. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily categorize that card as a bomb still just because it is eight mana. And like, you know, crew four, once you're at eight mana, if the board is stalled, like shouldn't be that big of a deal. But if you're playing this like long attrition-y game Mm -hmm. and you've had Parhelion the entire time, like it is possible that all your cards trade off and like this is the last card that you have left and it doesn't accomplish a whole lot at least right away. So... I do think that there are some blue-white decks with a lot of card advantage or like the five-color green decks, stuff like that, where that card could definitely be very strong. But I don't think it's a card that you just put in every deck. Oh, that's fair. What do you think of the limited format in general? Pleased with it? Have you found it interesting? Yeah, I, th- I think it's good. Uh, I-, I didn't do any practice drafts leading up to the MC or anything because it was kind of impossible. I thought that I was going to be able to get some drafts in on Arena or Magic Online, but only Sealed was out. So I just couldn't do anything basically so my first draft was at the mc drafted like a a reasonable green white polar proliferate deck because it just seemed like if people were like misevaluating cards and like trying to mess around that like a beatdown deck would be good and i I think my deck had some very very good cards and then like some pretty bad filler and uh i went i went oh three but like the games were competitive and you know whatever but uh, since then, I've been drafting on Arena, and it's it's fun, but I think a lot of that might be due to my decks being stronger than I think would be representative of drafting with humans, because you see things like, you know, second and third pick Liliana. I posted a screenshot of a second pick Ugin in pack one with a common missing, and there are no foils on Arena or anything. So it's like this bot literally just took a common over Ugin, you know, like that is messed up. I really want to know what it was. I mean, it, it obviously doesn't matter because it's wrong no matter what it was, but it would be hilarious if it was just like a grizzly bear. <laughs> just like snap it up. Got to take it. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I've i had some people tell me that this is a feature and not a bug. I am not necessarily convinced of that. I feel yeah, I like. Well, I, I mean, there, there are us, right? Where it's like we want to like practice and play these hard competitive games and have this simulate real life. And the argument that was posed to me was that 
you know, we're in the vast minority and people find it fun when they get like a busted deck or a second pick Ugin or whatever, you know, they just want to be able to play with these cool cards. But I, I find it very odd that that is what the bots are doing now when in Ravnica, they just literally would not pass a dual land, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, okay, you're, you're not willing to pass me a dual land, but you're willing to pass me a Liliana like that. That doesn't line up to me. So I don't know. Maybe they're just going to curate them for whatever they see fit for the format going forward. I I don't know. I also think like contemplating things that way, like framing it as user experience and user experience positive is ignoring at least half the equation because you also have to play against those busted decks. And like when your opponent goes Ugin, Liliana, Finale, (laughs) that doesn't feel particularly good on the other side. So I think you're at least ignoring half the experience. And I think balance is more important and how far the balance is thrown off by instances where second pick Ugin is happening uh, is is pretty dramatic, especially if that's like a once in a while thing and you're the recipient of that and most of your opponents aren't. I, I mean, I just don't know how you balance that effectively. That's my point. Well, check this out. One of the things that I suggested uh, leading back to even my days as a Wizards employee was to make the draft formats higher powered and make them feel more like cube or modern masters, stuff like that, mm-hmm. where I think there is some merit to people wanting to play with like these sweet cards. And I also agree with you where it's like, you know, I, one of my draft decks had like two Kazminas, Jay Sarkin, whatever, like my deck was busted and I very easily five and it like could have been fun for my opponents, you know? Mm-hmm. where they they just see it like, oh, I'm just losing to this person's like insane bombs or whatever, right? And I, I think that if everyone gets that chance to play with cool cards, that makes it more exciting and more fun for everyone. So rather than just doing things like making your robot pass an Ugin for a grizzly bear, you should just make there be more cool things like Ugins. And I think this format is a pretty good indicator of that, where it's like there's a bunch of planeswalkers and they all do like these kind of like weird niche things. But uh, the, the format's like sort of slow, sort of grindy. You can do a bunch of sideways stuff. The planeswalkers add a lot of replayability. And I think that sort of format is the type of draft format that people would be more interested in. But Right now, people are mostly focusing on constructed, and certainly some of that is because of SCG's influence and everything. But at the same time, it's just like draft isn't that fun, you know. You do get a different experience, but if the format is Grizzly Bear and the Trained Armadon, Combat Tricks, whatever, like that is not very compelling gameplay for a lot of people. Yeah, I guess it's hard because I look at maybe the way I look at limited should be changing because I often look at it as the best thing to offer the most in franchise, like especially draft. I think draft is a format which calls back to people who have been involved in magic for, you know, 20 plus years. Those are the old school draft grinders, the people who only want to draft, people who refuse to let draft coverage die from the mythic championships are generally very, very, I I agree, but they're generally, let's not do this again. (laughs) They're very (laughs) enfranchised. And maybe that's changing somewhat with the advent of Arena. And maybe that is actually, that's the new player format now because it doesn't require you to have any collection whatsoever. It's the actual, it's closer to free to play than anything else on Arena, short of like jamming intro decks. I mean, yeah, you can play ladder and grind like that is free and it's not that difficult to get mono red or mono white or whatever. 
Right. I don't know if people perceive it the same way. I mean, maybe they do. I, it's so hard for me to put myself in the shoes of a new player who's just coming to Arena for the first time because I'm so far removed from that. I feel like there's some hesitance to invest in a deck right off the bat. Like, I don't think anyone who's spending their first month on Arena starts by just being like, I'll buy all the cards I need to play this thing. I do it very differently no matter what game I'm playing. When I started playing like Pokemon TCG, I just bought all the cards I needed for the decks I thought were interesting. But I don't think most people do things that way. Well, it's it's weird because in the internet era and when people are coming from other games, you know, if you're coming from Hearthstone or Shadowverse, Eternal, whatever, it's like these these games have limited formats, but I really do think that Constructed is most of what people play. And I think yeah. if you come if you come into arena, you poke around on the client and then you're like, okay, what's next? What are the good constructed decks? And people do research and figure out what they want to play. And then they just like figure out whether or not they can build it or they build like a budget version of it if they don't want to spend money on the game or whatever. But I do think that people try to take reasonably competitive decks to ladder, at least if they've had some uh, like TCG game experience before. Yeah, you may be right. It's an interesting time in gaming in general. I think so much has changed and a lot of these assumptions that I've previously brought to the table, they probably need to be rebooted and checked. This might be one of them. It might just be like draft should be pointing towards new players or maybe the old thing holds up. We'll have to see how this all plays out as we unpack this new world of arena, which has been great, by the way. This is like the first week one of Standard where I kind of already had all the cards possible and... I just like had the intro pack waiting for me or whatever it was, the bundle, the 50 packs. And then I bought 50 more and I was like, okay, I can build absolutely everything I want. It's nice to have that kicking right off the bat. You learn a lot very quickly. I've played a bunch of different decks and it's been kind of fun. It seems like this arena or the standard format is going to be really, really great. Where are you at right now in the letter? I think I am. Well, we would have reset today, right? So now oh, I would really? be, yeah, I think today is the reset. So now I would be gold. I didn't play much this season because dead standard. So I was sitting at diamond before there was the reset. Oh, okay. So I, th- I think it reset for me last night because I'm in Europe. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that's what happened because I, I started at silver this morning and I, I was playing various Demir decks and I got up to like gold three or something. So. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't played a ton because of the MC and all that jazz, but yeah. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot of incentive before War of the Sparks release. And then I, I think I was like platinum and then I played up to diamond pretty quickly. There's very solid looking decks floating around out there. Some stuff that I think is still under the radar. And I also think we're starting to carve out our top tier. And I think as we head into SCG Richmond, which you and I will be at this weekend, very exciting to commentate week one of standard it's we did it last time with the release of uh ravnica allegiance getting to do it this time and it's definitely the best tournament to cast because you never know what's going to be sitting down in the future batch area yeah last time we commented on week one standard we got to see the rise of hydroid crashes from the front seat and i thought that was pretty interesting because you got to see the players who were smart enough to evaluate that as a big player in the format. And then you got to see exactly how good that card was basically before anyone else did. Right. And it was, I mean, being there was a different experience, I think, even than watching it, because it was kind of all anyone was talking about just round after round. That was the focal point. Anything you have your eye on right now, maybe poised for the same kind of breakout weekend down in Richmond. 
I think Kefnet is the card that is most poised for a potential breakout, but I haven't actually seen it popping up in a lot of lists yet, but that has been primarily the card that I've been working on. Kefnet has been very impressive for me in my kind of Demir-ish lists for sure. I think it is underutilized right now, and I think it's because there's a pretty clear established metagame of very good existing decks, and people are a little hesitant to pick up anything new because the existing decks are punishing. We talked about this throughout War of the Spark preview season. The core of like mono-white, mono-red, very punishing for any deck that isn't particularly suited to deal with those things. But I think now you have to add Simic Nexus into that same rider it got a huge upgrade which neither of us put on our top 10 list and i immediately regretted it upon playing with it in tamio collector of tales which has really given that archetype a shot in the arm that it didn't really need it was already a very good deck uh, but it's gotten way more consistent way more streamlined where you're just not playing any bad spells anymore everything is leading towards this one singular goal and you achieve that goal with stunning regularity right now yeah, I definitely agree that Tomio is an all-star in specifically that deck, but even knowing what I know now, like I don't think that I would have put it on my top 10. Interesting. I think it deserves a spot just for how much of an upgrade it is there. But you're right, that's not seen play elsewhere. It didn't inspire new archetypes. So depending on your criteria, I can understand still not wanting to upgrade it into contention. For me, it certainly would have at least taken my honorable mention slot, but probably would have been somewhere towards the high end of my list, quite frankly, because I think it does change that single archetype so much that it's worth acknowledging. No, that's that's completely fair. I I do think that uh, some of the cards that we may have undervalued are like the Red Planeswalkers, Chandra and Sarkin. We have the first deck dump from Magic Online, and it's it's sparse. Like, it's only 11 decks, I think. And it, it is stuff that we expected, basically. Nothing too crazy, except it does look like these red decks got a lot better. Yeah, they're the big red decks definitely picked up important, important tools. Uh, I will say that the new Chandra has impressed me in play much more than I thought it would. The fact that it's kind of this lava axe that just sits there is really intimidating. And maybe we should start our discussion of this deck dump. Even though it's small, we still want to do it. This is this is game podcast tradition. I think we have to work through this deck dump. And definitely there's something to learn, even if the player base is kind of minuscule on Magic Online right now. There's still those last people hanging on, though, to the standard metagame and making sure those leagues fire with like 60, 70 people over and over. Yeah, which is kind of crazy how the mighty have fallen. And uh, there are some more decklists being shared at Arena Decklists on Twitter if you want to go check that out, too. I don't think that we're reaching like peak capacity because people still have like technology that they want to hold on to and they're still tournaments coming up that people want to prepare for and not necessarily spoil their their tech for but right now uh we have magic online deck dump and arena deck list and that's basically it yeah and i think that's getting us there i do have i do have the sense i have a clear picture of the metagame i know what's happening that along of course with the usual articles over on scg other sources you're getting a picture of what people are excited about at least and i think that's the important thing to have in week one you don't want to over metagame anyway because for as much as we're plugged in to all this information, there's going to be a group of people in Richmond who are not plugged in on the same level and are going to take a more basic approach. And you should be cognizant of that. You don't want to go too far afield to account for what everyone is talking about over in the what we'd play column or something like that. Right. I definitely agree with that. And then after SCG Richmond, we'll likely have something closer to an actual metagame that you can then actually prepare for. Right. My take as well. 
Uh, so the first deck is from X-File, who uh, I had uh, tweeted a list of his before because he was the one that was putting Niv-Magus Elemental into Mono Red Phoenix. And uh, there was some discussion on his Twitter about his deck list because he's playing Big Red with 22 Mountains, 4 Chandra, 4 Experimental Frenzy, 2 Sarkin the Masterless. And Sarkin has looked good. The thing about 22 Mountains, even though you have eight four mana cards and two five mana cards is that uh, he said that he basically only wants to hit land four because the four mana cards get you your fifth land for Sarkin. So it's not that big of a deal, but it is possible that he's like a land or two short. I'm inclined to believe that Uh, there's a lot of very expensive cards. It's also weird. Experimental frenzy is not what it was in the mono red deck here. Not even close, but still confident enough in its ability that, X-File just wants four copies here, and, you know, it's a powerful card. I get it, and there's a lot of games that that's the only card that's going to win you the game, and you could still go off with Runaway Steamkin. All those things still exist, so I understand leaning really hard into it. It does feel like this list could be cleaned up a little bit, but I, I like the core of these Planeswalkers. Like you said, both maybe cards we undervalued a little bit. Chandra, far more impressive in play than in just reading the text. And what do you know, Planeswalkers... Very, very difficult to evaluate. Who would have expected that to be the case? Absolutely nobody, I'm sure. No, I mean, I, I think we read half of them correctly, you know? like Is that <laughs> is that a good rate? I don't even know if we should be proud of that. I mean, it, it, they're hard. They're really, really hard. And Chandra was right there with the hardest of them, I think, because it's a very unique static ability. And it's hard to perceive that as a Lava Axe the first time you look at it. Yeah, for sure. There, there was even a person at the MC in London who altered their Chandra and forgot to use the the trigger on it. So it was like they just missed out on seven points of damage. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's an important thing to remember. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on uh, at MC London, it being basically a pre-release Pro Tour. A lot, a lot of it. Maybe would be shocked, I'm not sure. But yeah, there was a lot, possibly too much. No, I don't, th- I don't want to be shocked at all. I've been playing on Arena and just doing stupid things on a regular basis. And like, that's an even clearer interface where I can stop and look at any card anytime I want very clearly. I've blocked creatures with first strike due to Nahiri. I haven't done the thought erasure of my opponent when they have Tamio in play, but lots of people have done that to me. I'll tell you that. So yeah, I believe it. Uh, the, these cards are hard to pick up on and it, it takes time to get your shortcuts going. That's for sure. Yeah, also worth noting in X-Files sideboard, one copy of Tybalt, Rackish Instigator. So you have a 3-4-5 curve in Mono Red now with these Planeswalkers that are decent, and that's even outside of playing things like Karn or Ugin or whatever. And Tybalt stops all of the life gain from Esper, which is super nice, and then mm-hmm. eventually can become a dragon with Sarkin. So uh, even in aggressive Mono Red, I think Tybalt is something that you probably want to be looking at. Yeah, it seems like that's the consensus right now uh, among the the Lucas Faley style of mono red with low land count, very aggressive. They're still including a copy of Tybalt in the sideboard, uh, and I like it. I think it's an important angle to cover. Like you mentioned, Esper picked up a lot of good life gain options, and Tybalt just says, nope, not interested, while also providing just a little bit of value, a little bit of damage. Kind of exactly what you want from that card. I mean, I guess exactly what you want is rampaging for Ocidon, but yeah. <laughs> Standard still has a ban list, so there you go. You're not getting that one. Yeah, I, I made that joke earlier that it's it's basically the same thing as for Ocidon. Obviously, it's, it's much weaker, but <laughs> still kind of funny that Tybalt lives and for Ocidon dies. Yeah, well, that's the world we live in. But yeah, uh, another matchup that may or may not exist, I don't actually know, I haven't seen a ton of it, is 
Uh, something like Saltai or Golgari, I think Tybalt is quite strong against because they're normally on the defensive and don't really have the capability of attacking your planeswalkers, uh, at least if you're doing your job correctly. And Tybalt shutting off the life gain from Wild Growth Walker or Hydroid Crassus can sure. make the game a lot easier to actually put away. Yeah, I buy that. I wonder if it significantly changes the matchup or if it's just like, you know, a little a little plink of value that occasionally comes up and you're happy to have it or if it's something that just like because those were the decks that were preying on mono red for a long time and i think if mono red were to take over this format you'd see a lot more of the golgari sultai style decks uh and they need to have a juke in their pocket in that case and i wonder if it's just like going hard into tybalt is what can do it for them yeah it's kind of awkward because you still need to lava coil a wild growth walker and you know, like you, you might shut off the life gain, but it's still just like a five power creature or whatever. It's still very large. Yeah. So it doesn't solve all of your problems, but it does help. Agreed. Uh, next deck is from Chesington 13. This is the uh, Boros Heroic featuring 10th District Legionnaire, Feather the Redeemed, Dreadhorde Arcanist, Adonto Vanguard, and a couple copies of Cranko with a bunch of Shock, Sheltering Lights, Defiant Strikes, Gird for Battle, and of course, Reckless Rage. So I was kind of crushing with this deck on Arena before I moved on to other things. And I, I don't have a reason I moved on to other things. Uh, I just like wanted to play other decks. But when I first put together this heroic archetype, and my list looks a little bit different from Chesington. There's a lot of things I like about his list and things I don't like. But on the whole, the thing that just blew me away, Dreadhorde Arcanist, especially in combination with Feather, that card is bonkers, like just bonkers. You get to attack with it and you feel invincible sometimes. And it especially opened my eyes to just how powerful that card can potentially be when your spell quality is upgraded. And I recently wrote about my top 10 modern cards from War, and I had Dreadhorde Arcanist very high on the list despite seeing none of it thus far. I just believe when you have access to those one mana spells that exist in modern, this card has the potential to go bonkers and just completely take over a game for a two drop, that's the type of thing that gets you banned, like Stoneforge Mystic. So I think that demands more exploration. In Standard, however, you see the collection of one mana spells we're working with. They're not as good. And if there's a weak point of this deck, it's kind of that you're playing things like Sheltering Light, Defiant Strike. But you get a ton of card selection. You have a nice clock, so you can pressure the Simic Nexus decks, which are all over the place. And then you have Staying Power. I mean, I remember playing games against Esper Control, where we're late in the game, like turn five, turn six. They're down to two cards in hands, and I have seven because I've just gone like Arcanist into Defiant Strike, into Feather, into all these card advantage engines, and uh, you can really grind with those decks now, and it's cool to see when it all comes together. Yeah, it feels similar to the old Heroic decks where they had, you know, like this Protect My Thing beatdown deck, but they also had Ordeal of Thassa and Treasure Cruise, mm-hmm. and you, you would just frequently outcard the control decks, which is basically the best feeling of all time. And... Dreadhorde Arcanist specifically reminds me of Dark Confidant to the point where it's like, if you get to untap with this card, you're going to be at such a huge advantage. And maybe you can make the case for Wild Growth Walker in some matchups, like actually forcing the issue. But for the most part, you play a two drop in standard, they can ignore it for a little bit. You don't have this immense pressure on you to actually remove this thing as soon as possible. And Dreadhorde Arcanist certainly provides that. Yeah, I agree. It's been such an impressive card. Of course, there's the interaction with Arcanist and Feather, so you actually get to take the Dreadhorde Arcanist card back into your hand out of pulling it from your graveyard, which is pretty incredible. Krenko has been very impressive. I 
maybe undervalued that card a little bit just because it felt like another Legion War boss. And in some aspects, it is, uh, but it goes a lot wider. And that's cool. It has a lot of other synergies where you can pump up its power and get the immediate reward for it. Or like, uh, this particular list doesn't play Samet Sprint. I do in my list. So Krenko into Samet Sprint is just an absolute beating. Yeah, I like that. Uh, you were playing with Gideon in this list too. Chesington has zero copies in the 75. How do you feel? So I, I started with one Gideon main. It was great. And I'm like, I need as many Gideons as possible. I went to three Gideons main. And then I was like, oh, actually, this card is great in situations where you're already pressuring and are ahead and absolutely horrible if you ever fall behind. And I, I think it actually is a sideboard card, at least in standard, as I initially set up this deck. There's certainly ways you could leverage Gideon a lot harder, but you're pretty threat light here. And you really need to have battlefield presence very early. I've seen some mono white lists looking to push Gideon harder. And I think that's a better home for it than this heroic style of deck. The card's very good. Here, though, you kind of have a duality to your game plan. And Gideon only really plays well one way. And it's unique yep. among cards in your deck. And it's for the same reason I actually don't like Adanto Vanguard in this archetype. Uh, I like being able to... I sit behind Hunted Witness and I'm able to then leverage the lifelink token or block for a bunch of turns while I, while I set my stuff up because I think it plays well both ways. It can attack early and fill in that blocking role. Uh, Adanto Vanguard doesn't play well both ways. So I, I think that's what you want for this particular deck. However, Gideon, very, very impressive card in several situations. It's a fine sideboard inclusion here if you want it. But I also think what Chesington did here is fine. It's not a card you have to play in this archetype. Fair enough. Uh Next list is from Bertram, and this is basically the the mono red uh, splashing two drops kind of thing where you want to play Goblin Chain Whirler, but you also need a powerful two drop. So there are things like Gruel Guildgate to enable Growth Chamber Guardian and Gruel Spellbreaker on three. And then this deck has four Chandra, four Sarkin, and uh, two copies of Domri. Interesting. It's interesting that we're replacing the previous top end with these big planeswalkers. I think you would have previously seen things like Skargan Hellkite, any other five drop beater, you know, occasionally saw things like Ravager Worm if you were looking to go real big. Here instead, we're leaning on these planeswalkers and I like it. Like I said, I think they are just impressive cards, for mo far more impressive than I initially anticipated. Uh, Sarkin, probably a better version of that beatdown-ish creature. So... This seems like it has legs. This was a deck that was fine in Last Standard. Uh, you get the option of Cinder Vines in post-board games, which I think is important in this metagame. Uh, aggressive decks that have Cinder Vines are probably better positioned than those that don't. But also you can go a little bit longer and Status Statue waiting there in the sideboard, which I, I love seeing if we're going to get bogged down in mid-range mirrors. Really, mid-range has kind of struggled early on, but I think it'll find its footing. I think that's an issue of figuring out exactly what deck lists are supposed to look like right now. And I wouldn't expect mid-range to be shut out when it comes to uh, SCG Richmond. Yeah, I would say give it to like week two or week three. I mean, it's it's possible that Sultai or Golgari does actually make its presence known in Richmond's. But I think that was way more likely last season when Sultai was also a candidate for like the most powerful deck just on like raw stats. And a lot of that had to do with the advent of Hydroid Grasses and like not a lot of people adapting to that sort of arms race quite yet. But mm. now, I mean, Sultai gets Vivian and Liliana, so it does get some upgrades, but I do think it's just behind. It has felt that way. 
Uh, and I th- actually think like the black decks in general have kind of felt that way to me. I know you're a little bit higher on Demir than I've been, even though I've mostly been winning with it, but there's just this feeling that something's missing a little bit. It, it does feel like the black decks are a little bit lacking and other decks are just able to do more powerful stuff at this stage. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem with Demir is that you really need your very specific cards to be good in in the relevant matchup. Like if you play against decks where Enter the God Eternals is not powerful, right. then you're you're just starting from a deficit. But if you are living in this world where there's a lot of mid range and a lot of aggro, then you're just golden. You're set. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. But you play against a mid-range deck uh, that has like entrancing melody or whatever. It's like it feels bad. You yes, know, you need your cards to line up. But yeah, I, I like this Gruel deck. I liked it a lot last season. I think that Sarkin is definitely a bigger upgrade to Skargan Hellkite. I wasn't even playing any Hellkites towards the end in my list. And still not sure how I feel about Chandra. But uh, obviously, you know, you're you're this mid-rangey deck, but also very aggressive. Every point of damage matters. And uh, they are going to have to remove your Chandra at some point, so that is certainly nice. I'm kind of surprised to only see five burn spells in this list and no Collision Colossus in the 75 or whatever, but there's something here, and I definitely like it. With you. Uh, next up, we have Denise Vichalexi. Is this is this a real person? Do I have to Google this? It's not a person whom I know personally, but I think that was – you're very good at picking out exactly what words are contained in these moto names. I would have just not said anything, honestly. <laughs> I wouldn't have pulled that out. Oh, okay. So I, I think it is Denisovich Alexi. Okay. Based on capitalization from like MTG Top 8 or whatever. Like now the, the moto decks just post everything in all caps for whatever reason. Right, right. And this – that screen name does belong to someone on Instagram. So maybe that is, that is just their actual name. So <laughs> this is uh, impressive moto detective work as always. Yo, I'm, I'm going deep, man. Uh, so this is 18 lane mono red two risk factor. This is Luke's deck. Yeah. Uh, and I think we've set our part on this deck. Uh, it was the best deck before war. It hasn't gotten worse. It hasn't really gotten better either. It's up to you to decide whether that's enough in this format. And there are things that could hard target it, but there are things like Enter the God Eternals and maybe cards that haven't quite find, found their footing yet. So it'll be interesting to see if this deck shows up in force in Richmond and what it can do there. I, th- I think people, for the most part, want to play with new cards. Right. And then there's always somebody who punishes them for doing so <laughs> and just runs over the tournament. So we'll see if there's someone brave enough to just sleeve up all old cards when we get there and trample over everyone with these aggressive red creatures. Who was your buddy that won week one with Mono Red that you told me was like a Mono Red master? Uh, Phil Bertarelli. And yeah, he, yeah. He does not play much magic these days. He's just, uh, and he really didn't play much magic then either. He's just an incredibly smart person I knew locally. Uh, yeah, and showed up and just absolutely crushed a tournament with Mono Red, as he often did when he took the time to travel to things. Yep. Yeah, so that that's kind of exactly who I think of now mm-hmm. when it's just like, well, all of these things seem good, but what about Phil? You yeah, know? yeah, Phil could always show up any moment and will probably win if he does. Well, next up we have uh, regular game listener VTCLA with Demir Midrange. Terramanders in this list, four copies of Terramander, three Augur Bolas, two God Eternal Kefnet. Terramanders enabling Charter Course. Obviously, there are four copies of Thought Erasure. Four Enter the God Eternals. Four Enter the God Eternals. That's that's a large number of Enter the God Eternals. 
It is a lot. I've capped out at three. I don't I don't think four is very realistic, but it does fuel your Terramander, which is kind of nice. Right. Uh, I like Opt in any deck with Kefnet because Opt's mm-hmm. Kefnet is a super sick combo because Kefnet uh, triggers for the first card that you draw on each turn. So any sort of instant speed card drawing is very, very nice. And then there's some removal, a couple cast downs, a couple Tyrant Scorns, Vraska's Contempt, one Callous Dismissal, which I I tried after seeing VTCLA's deck and just absolutely hated. And then uh, two Cry of the Carnarium, two Notion Rain to round things out. How do you feel about Tyrant Scorn? Uh, it's been good for me. I think it's versatile enough that it deserves a slot in most of these Demir decks. I, I didn't start with it, and as time went on, I was like, oh, I'm actually finding uses for this. You do cute stuff with Augur once in a while in desperate situations. So it's good. I, I definitely support Tyrant Scorn. I think this is a good Kefnet deck, and it's a good Kefnet deck by leaning hard on sorceries, which I don't think people often enough do with Kefnet. Uh, there's too many instants and still counter magic being played alongside Kefnet. And while you don't have to work hard for Kefnet to be good, when you do, it just goes bonkers. And like you said, little things like playing Opt whenever you play Kefnet just add huge amounts of value to it. It's hard for me to picture Baker's List ever losing to like a mono red list. I feel like you're just hard targeting them with this four, Enter the God Eternals. But I don't know how to play a deck like this in a world that is very much Simic Nexus based. And I guess you're just picking on the aggro decks. You're going to have a hard time with Nexus. You're going to have a hard time with control. Maybe you're very threat light. You don't really have a way to protect your threats. So interesting approach. I don't think this is like a long-term player. And I feel like Baker would probably agree. You know, he's always moving from deck to deck. I don't think he's hundred percent sold on this list. It's the best thing you can be doing, but it's a nice first take. And there's a lot of things I think he got right here. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, Terramander Charter Course is a nice little engine for this deck, especially when you have Enter the God Eternals filling up your graveyard and everything. I've mostly leaned a little bit more on the the mid-range to control side of things and have been liking that, but I'm interested in the Terramander approach, especially since in Demir, you get all these six sideboard cards like Duress, Negate, Disdainful Stroke, and those cards get way better if you have a bunch of cheap threats. And right. certainly with all the Planeswalkers running around, having a cheap evasive body is pretty nice. So it's it's possible that I want to try Baker's List a little bit more. Yeah, Terramander, a good call. And a card that's been underappreciated still, I think, in the format. Only seen play really in Mono Blue ever. Probably has some other homes. I guess you could call back to Is It Drake's very early on, but even those decks eventually moved away from Terramander for the most part. Yep. Next deck is from Magic Guru 11. And I'll, I'm just going to let you talk about this one. This is two Blast Zone, three Tamiyo, one Commence the Endgame, Simic Nexus. Uh, yeah. So I, I think this is Kane Reinhardt. Oh, okay. And this was his earliest foray into Simic Nexus. And a lot has changed since this point, especially this sideboard where he was like, I was just putting cards in it to see what was good. Things like Nissa who shakes the world and Narset's reversal, I don't think are actually going to be included. But what's worth talking about is Tamio, of course. And you see, even at this early stage, Kane had started mitigating win conditions down to just one commence the end game. The fact is you don't even need commence the end game. And I think it's just a mistake to have it in your deck. You just need one callous dismissal 
and that's all you get to play to win the game. And that's awesome. You obviously know I love the thinnest win conditions possible. Things are getting very, very thin with this deck. And it's just a spell you're happy to play in a lot of instances. And I love it. I think it's such a huge upgrade for this deck. Other huge upgrade, Blast Zone. I know it's a card you didn't really like, but especially in this deck where you're able to bring it online very quickly. And you do have problem permanence you have to answer. You need to have a plan for Teferi, for Narset. Those cards are very, very problematic. And it's not hard to deal with them via Blast Zone. You can take your time, set up a Blast Zone, deploy it end of turn, and then you're pretty much in fine shape going into your next turn. So... While some of these numbers I expect to change a little bit, you could see Blink of an Eyes float up and down. You could see the Sinister Sabotages float up and down. I think this is the core of what, in a vacuum, is the best deck in the format. Now, that can change very hard when everyone believes this to be the best deck in the format and is loading up on Narsets and Teferis and other problematic ways of interaction. Thief of Sanity is still a card that's very strong against you. Uh, We'll see if that actually happens or not. Or if people just don't give this deck the respect it deserves. I don't know, though. I, this is this would be my pick for week one without question. I think it's just so much more powerful than everything else that's going on. I'm already playing against a bunch of Narsets and Teferis, and I think that's just because those cards are completely reasonable to put in your deck. I, I think that's true. And while those cards are problematic, I don't want to make them sound like they're a death knell. You can beat all those cards. And these decks have adapted to do so. One of the things that also helps that whole plan is in fact adding things like the Callous Dismissal as your win condition, so you can just bounce those cards in key spots. But upping the number of Blink and Eyes, Blink of an Eye is good too. Blast Zone being maximized, all these things are accounting for those cards already, and you're able to beat them. Don't have the fear of those hate cards. Uh, it just makes things a little bit harder on you. And if they weren't there, this deck would be running over this tournament, hands down, no questions asked. Uh, it's going to have to fight for it now, though, that people have made appropriate adjustments and are just playing good cards, like you mentioned. Well, the thing that I don't necessarily agree with you on is that like Tamiyo just, you know, moves this deck to like the next level or whatever. I do think that you still have issues with Azorius Aggro and with Mono Red. And I don't think that Blast Zone and Arboreal Grazer out of the sideboard are going to do it for you. Mono Red is your worst matchup. And basically the point I'm at is conceding that matchup because I think you're so strong against everything else, including... The Azorius aggro decks, they have not really been problematic. Tamiyo looping fogs matters so, so much, and it comes up over and over, and it's just a very challenging card for them to beat. If they have the perfect draw, their counter magic lines up with what you're doing, sure. that That's always been the case. There's nothing you can really do about the mono white deck that has the exact right amount of pressure backed up by counter magic, and I think that extends to most decks in the format. It's just a very difficult strategy to answer. But with a large percentage of games, you have meaningful interaction. You have ways to play around what they're doing. Uh, and Tamiyo is a key part of that. And all the... There's also just the fact you don't fizzle anymore. Because anyone who played this deck a lot pre-Tamiyo knew you could get to the state where you feel unassailable. And you're like, all right, I lost to my 10% chance. That 10% chance is gone. Tamiyo just erases that by shrinking your deck dramatically, giving you another search for Ascanta type effect where you're getting four cards deep, filling up your graveyard so your search flips earlier. All these things matter in conjunction. And if you haven't played with the card in the deck, I think it's very hard to understand the subtle things, the subtle ripples it causes throughout. But it changes a lot of matchups very, very dramatically. Yep, fair enough. Uh, next deck is from Mizuku94. Is this anyone that I don't know? Uh, no one I know. Well, I, I hope it's no one I know because they only have six sideboard cards. That's all they needed. Four duress. Well, that, they're that confident. 
four duress, two Orzov Enforcer. Uh, this is this is like a white black aristocracy deck with four revival and four Soren Vengeful Bloodlord. Also uh, making good use out of Cruel Celebrant. You know what card I really like here? Revival Revenge. Not a card I've seen a lot of thus far. Uh, but Mizuku loading up on that one to get back copies of whatever key piece you need here, be it Priest of Forgotten Gods, Cruel Celebrant. This is a cool take. As I read this, I'm unpacking how good this may actually be. But I've hated the new Judith decks. I think they have the exact same problems they had in the last format. Absolutely nothing has changed, which was kind of my concern going into all the hype about restoring those decks via cruel celebrant they still just fold to cry they still have awkward mana they get beat up by more aggressive decks and i didn't think soren was going to cover things but here the setup feels a little bit different a little bit more streamlined a little bit more willing to play a longer game although admittedly with the same weakness to cry of the carnarium but at least we're trying something new here and i like this more mid-range ish version of this deck so i liked revival a lot when i had Judith or Militia Bugler, just like something to really take advantage of the fact that you're spending two mana to maybe get a three drop back. And mm-hmm. I think this deck with all of its Plaguecrafters and Midnight Reapers, there there might be like enough good targets, but I would like to see that being pushed a little bit more. But yeah, between Re- Revival and Soren, like you're, you're going to have your key piece. It's going to be really tough for them to continually kill your Priest of Forgotten Gods or whatever. And... The thing that I do think changes this deck is playing Oketra and or six mana Liliana. Uh, I can buy that. Give it some long game power. Maybe you think revenge ever gets cast in this deck. I never cast it when I played it, but it's just too good to spend two mana to get a three drop because your, your three drops are also like giving you value. It's just very rare occurrence where revenge is actually better than just casting revival. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you mentioned Bugler. Bugler seems like a pretty nice use of those uh, untouched nine sideboard slots. You could at least get a little <laughs> bit more long game power there if you wanted to. Uh, so that's something worth exploring. But G- Gideon yeah, too. I, Gideon, yeah, there's there's a lot of other cards you could play here. But I, I think this deck can grind, and that's really cool. I also should note, I just got clarification from Kane. He's not Magic Guru. That's one of his friends. So I apologize to Magic Guru. <gasps> Uh, I don't want to take away your accomplishments from you. You have a fine deck list. Props to you. See, I was willing to buy the fact that, you know, Magic Guru was Kane, you know, but now that it it's fits. not Kane. Yeah. Now that it's not Kane, I'm I'm not really buying into the screen name all that much. I feel like that's a little over the top. Oh, bring in the heat to Magic Guru. I like it. We don't even know who it is. You're just bringing the heat at them. I mean, if if he doesn't even have a name or they don't even have a name, it's just Kane's friend. I mean... How good can I'm, they I'm be? Sh- I'm sure they have a name. Kane just didn't <laughs> tell me their name. They're not a nameless one who just wanders around Magic Online dueling people to try and restore their honor. They just have not presented their name to me. That's all. All right, moving on. We have Dilligord with white black stuff. We have both knights, a Johnny's Pride Mate, History of Benalia, Othakaya, some Moment of Cravings, Mortify Vraska's Contempt, and then 10 Planeswalkers. Five of them that are different. Well, there's a lot of stuff here. I think you you said that very accurately. I don't know how it all melds together. The knights seem nice. You don't see much of them presently. This this dual knight of grace, knight of malice package. That three power first strike, certainly very, very good against the red decks. Uh, I imagine probably have a fantastic red matchup with all these Oath of Kaya's and 
uh, incidental life gain and first strike blockers. So that's a nice point. Can this deck grind? Maybe. A lot of Planeswalkers on the top end, a lot of card advantage via them. So maybe this deck just leans on them against the controlling decks. I kind of like a lot of what's going on here. I just think there's a lot of clunk and a lot of three, four, five mana cards in this 24 land deck where if you curve out and cast your spells on time, you're probably doing really powerful stuff. I expect a lot of clunky games with this deck. White, black in general, especially the ones that have like like this one, you have 12 grizzly bears. You are going to be able to go over the top of the smaller decks and you're going to be able to like pressure control while also presenting hard to deal with threats. So those two matchups are are easy-ish. And then against actual mid-range like Sultai, they're just going to go over the top of you. And in Orzov, mm-hmm. there's very little you can actually do about that sort of stuff. Now, you have Raska's Contempt to deal with opposing Planeswalkers and things like Liliana. But realistically, your best bet is stuff like History of Benalia, Gideon, and actually pressuring them. So... For anyone who is trying to play some sort of like Orzov smaller mid-range deck, know your role for sure in each matchup. Like that is the best possible thing that you can do. This deck also has a horrifying Nexus matchup, I will mention. Uh, I do like the Dispark in the sideboard, though. I think that's an important card that decks are kind of lacking right now. Uh, It actually cleans up a lot of stuff that you should be worried about in this format. So more Disparks going forward, please. Yeah, I like that card. Maybe a little too much just because of how narrow it is, but it is good. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's narrow in one sense, but if the focal point is all these large things that you have to deal with, it's a great sideboard card. All right, I'm Googling how to pronounce the next person's name. Okay, and then tell me about their family history as well, where they presently live, what they do for a living. I expect all these facts Dude, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to dox anyone on this podcast, you know. <laughs> I don't know. You got very offended when we didn't have a name for Kane's friend. It seems like you do really want this personal <laughs> information out there. Anyway, th- this is Mr. Cafouillette. It sounds very French, and this this person always plays like Jeskai and Blue Eye Control in Modern. So for a while, people were saying that this was Wafotapa's secret account, which would not be very secret if all you do is play Jeskai. But uh, I, I believe that was debunked at some point. Okay. That said, uh, they're they're playing Jeskai Control in Standard. So, Augur <laughs> uh, Bolas, three Teferi Hero of Dominaria, two Teferi Time Raveler, one Ugin, some Solar Blazes, some Ral's Outbursts, couple commence the End Game. Dovin's Veto has been very very nice, and then three yes, copies of three copies of Blast Zone in the mana base. Yeah, that's. That's something. That seems like a stretch to me. Like, I I wouldn't hate if you were like, okay, this is a spell in my deck and you played 27 lands. Okay, then I'll let you get away with two copies of Blast Zone. I think you can make that argument. Here, though, those Blast Zones just straight up terrify me and I'm I'm not sure how they work. I will say I like the Augur Bolas hit count being kept very high. I think that's something that people are doing wrong with Augur presently. It's not like the days where you had restoration angel to get a rebuy on it i think you really need to be making sure you're getting your percentages up probably above 80 percent before you're comfortable playing auger uh and this deck does that so props there as far as jeskai as a whole i'm not sure exactly what we're doing better than esper what we're targeting it seems like our post board options are super weak in a lot of instances so you'd have to sell me on a reason why this is the path for control to take presently i don't see it 
Yeah, it's weird that the reason that you would normally play Jeskai is something like Deafening Clarion, and those are just living in the sideboard. Mm-hmm. So I am kind of confused. Uh, worth noting that this deck only plays three Augur of Bolas. Uh, VTCLA only played three Augur of Bolas. And the reason for that is what you said, where you're trying to keep your hit count high enough. So, yeah, and it's a struggle. It's a struggle in a lot of these decks because you have a lot of Planeswalkers you want to play and things like Simic Nexus, where I thought the card would just be absurd. You have all these enchantments you have to play and it's hard to get your count as high as you need it to be. Yeah, before, I think this was before Talmio was previewed where it was like, I was thinking, you know, three Surge, three Augur, four Reclamation, 25 mm-hmm. land, and then you have 25 hits, right? And that's that's pretty reasonable. But once you add Tamiyo into the mix and uh, Magic Guru is playing four search for his cancer, you just can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't worked for me either. And I, I've tried it as a sideboard option. I think the jury's still out on a Boreal Gla- Grazer versus Augur of Bolas in that deck. You miss. You do the thing, look at the top three cards, put them on the bottom of your library. It happens way too often, and it is painful. Welcome back, Augur Bolas. Yep. Next deck is from Zarutha, and this is pretty normal-looking Esper. One Liliana, one Teferi, uh, one D-Spark, one Dovin's Veto, uh, Sideboard Massacre Girl, one Sideboard Raveler, Teferi Time Raveler. Uh, so pretty normal stuff. No Blast Zones, which is kind of surprising because any deck with very few permanents is likely playing them. But I, the majority of Esper decks I've played against have... You know, Teferi, Narset, Liliana, I've seen some Ugins. Like, they're just kind of all in on this Planeswalker thing at this point. Yeah, I think that's a fine place for them to be. The Planeswalkers are good in this Planeswalker focus set. Who would have guessed? I think these decks are slanting a little bit bigger these days. You don't see Cry of the Carnarium anymore, which is interesting. And I wonder if they're going to get exploited by that when people stop the nonsense essentially which is the stage we're in right now like we're very much doing the nonsense thing and we all want to try something new but when it's time to just buckle down and play azorius aggro or play mono red uh these decks are going to be punished by making this shift to just relying on kaya's wrath and we'll have to give up some of these cute tools to get back to just those cry of canariums in the main deck yeah, it is It is certainly very dangerous, especially no Blast Zones, too. Like, with Blast Zone, you could make the case for, like, okay, this is the thing that I can do on turn four to get rid of two one-drops or three one-drops or whatever. But, yeah, none of those either. How do you see Esper in general going into week one of this format? It feels like it's lagging a little bit behind and maybe didn't pick up the right pieces from the set where basically every other deck just got way better and introduced some new archetypes as well. Well, if you want to play control and still have a chance against Simic Nexus, I think that Esper is probably the right color combination, right? Because you mm-hmm. want both discard and counter spells to be able to fight them. And Jeskai, you know, if you're trying to sit back on counter spells, it's just it's not going to work because at some point you need to present a threat. And Esper even has stuff like Mortify to be able to remove a wilderness reclamation if that slips through. So I like having Teferi Time Raveler, Narset, Duress, Thought Erasure, Thief of Sanity, and that combination of cards can actually just be a nightmare for Simic. So I I like Esper. I think it's completely fine. I think you can accomplish a lot of the same stuff just playing Demir. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I want to say that Standard has passed Teferi by because that's certainly like not the, the point that we're at or anything, but... I don't know. It just doesn't seem like there is a specific matchup where it's like, oh, yeah, Teferi is the best card possible here. It's like it's solid against everyone if you are 
playing blue and white cards, you know, you're probably going to be playing Teferi or whatever, but it's not like, oh, I want to play Esper because it's the best Teferi deck, if that makes any sense. Yeah, strange that that could be the case for Teferi, the last of the old school Planeswalkers, as we've often termed it. Although it feels like maybe this set, even if we're putting static abilities on them now, has has added some very powerful players to the mix, at the very least. For sure. And then... Last deck, we have good old Sultai, uh, one copy of Liliana Dreadhorde General, another copy in the sideboard, no Vivians, pretty much not a lot of new stuff. Yeah, a, a pretty boring but solid take on Sultai, just picking up a Liliana, which I think is fine. And now I finally get to get your opinion on this question that I've been holding for you all cast thus far. Oh, nice. Hit me. The hotness, the thing people are talking about the cool opinion to have right now. Liliana is trash and you should be playing Ugin in these decks instead. Would you like to respond to that, Gerald? Lol. That's my take as well. Now, look, let me say this. I I do think that you can come up with spots where Ugin will be a better card. I think that's entirely plausible. And I think that maybe these people are buying into those spots a little bit too hard. Because the vast majority of times, Liliana just closes the door on so many decks. It's unbeatable. And Ugin, very powerful card as well, doesn't have that same minus four, wipe your board, I draw two cards type effect. Just out of nowhere, that completely takes over the game. The alternative is like, here's my 2-2. If it dies, I'll get a card later. That sounds way worse to me. Or deal with your best threat, but here's my super low loyalty Planeswalker now. None of those things match up very well to Liliana in my eyes. And even if I'm going to concede a spot where Ugin is fine, I think just on the whole, you have to be playing Liliana in that spot. Yeah, I mean, if you basically I look at it like if you have creatures in your deck, Liliana is almost certainly going to outperform Ugin. If you are playing Esper Control and are not interested in the barter and blood off of Liliana, then sure, I guess like Ugin could potentially perform better for you. But yeah, just like playing Ugin, making a 2-2, and then getting Ugin killed. Yeah, okay, it is slightly better. But like when you play Ugin, make a 2-2, and then get your board wiped, Liliana obviously has like a much bigger impact on that. And I think that is kind of Liliana's job, where she comes down and just makes things worse for your opponents, like how Midnight Reaper used to show up in these Golgari decks, right? And it it would just make things very, very difficult for your opponent because their way to get back into things was generally a sweeper. And Liliana just makes that a losing proposition for your opponent, whereas Ugin just gives you a little bit of value. I will note that in instances where you don't have access to green, there's probably a harder push towards Ugin because you can now deal with a problematic permanent type that you previously could not deal with. And that's an interesting wrinkle that Ugin provides that Liliana yeah, cannot do. For sure. But if you're trying to kill Planeswalkers. Right. In this instance where you are very solidly this Simic deck, uh, I, I think you just have to be playing Liliana right now and probably are tricking yourself into something that seems cool if you're playing Ugin. Yeah, agree completely. I don't know. That's such a weird take to me. I hadn't even seen that. I don't know where you're picking that up from. But the first place I saw it was Misplaced Ginger over on Twitter. Oh, come on. Who had a hardline take that Ugin was, if it, I think his words were, if it wasn't better, uh, it was only very slightly worse, which seems like a bad reason to play a card. And I'm sure I'm misquoting to some extent, but that was the first place I saw it. And then over in our Discord, I saw a lot of people pushing the same kind of take. Uh, I know Kanye Best is of the opinion. Uh-oh. Jerry, do you hear that noise? It, it's time. We, we have to stop everything we're doing. 
as we head over to the Hasbro toy shop on eBay and order our mythic editions. Do we just keep this as part of the podcast? Do we, we live blog our attempt to purchase War of the Spark Mythic Edition? I don't know, man. I'm I'm hitting search. Nothing's happening. Well, I, so it's right now. I'll give people a live look in. It is 11, 1157. And we both have our eBay accounts up and are at the Hasbro toy shop searching, getting nothing. So why don't we we'll keep refreshing in the background as we continue to discuss Ugin. Uh, I saw Kanye Best was one of the Liliana haters over in our Discord. Kanye Best recently claimed number one ranking over on Arena. Uh, does not like Liliana. And then he had some supporters as he approached the topic. Not a fan of the card, thinking Ugin does more. I, I'm just not there. I, I get how you can have that opinion. I get that there's spots where Ugin's going to be better. And I think there's decks where Ugin is probably adding an important wrinkle, but you probably want to play it in conjunction, like 1-1 one, one split. And just saying it's better than Liana seems crazy to me. No, I mean, they they do similar things, but they do very different things, right? So obviously they're going to fit into different decks. Mm-hmm. That's, just, that's just how it is. Well, that does it for our deck dump. A very tiny one. Usually we spend like three hours doing this um, and it has gotten shorter with the shrinking of magic online this this better not be a recurring thing a recurring problem that we have getting to the deck dumps yeah i mean there'll always be arena deck list and i think at some point we'll probably be incentivized to just go through there and pick out our favorite lists and talk about them for our deck dump shows uh when things start getting really lean i don't think we're at that point yet i do think there was interesting discussion to be had throughout looking at these deck lists i think there were interesting takes uh and hopefully it did a good job of informing our listeners exactly how we view this format as it stands right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's still important. And then, I mean, in in the meantime, you know that Brian's working on Simic. I'm working on Demir. We've both liked those things. And I don't know, maybe, maybe if I was actually playing, you could see me tend towards one of the bigger red decks, but I don't know. Well, uh, do we have a question? All right, so why don't we answer David Crago's question? Because I think probably no one is better suited to answer this than you right now. David wants to know, is the London Mulligan here to stay? Jerry, what do you think? What was your experience with the London Mulligan? Well, I didn't play very many rounds at the MC. Uh, so, okay. you know, there there are maybe five or 600 other people who are just as qualified to answer this as me, if not more. So uh, my take is basically the same as a lot of people's that I've seen where yes, it does help smooth things out and create fewer non games. But I feel like the Vancouver Mulligan was a little bit better just because I think the London Mulligan goes a little too far, especially for formats like modern where yes, obviously you don't want to have non games, but like I'm not even sure how many non games exist in modern. If uh, we're not talking about like specific deck matchup type of stuff where, hey, maybe you get Allosaurus Ridered on turn one and you lose, right? Like that is that is going to be a product of how your decks match up against each other, not because, you know, their their Molda 5 was that bad and didn't allow them to play Magic or whatever. So I, I think what the Lennon Mulligan actually does for Modern is just homogenize everything to the point where it's too good. Like the decks are too good and they play out too similarly. Like 
you know, just like Tron and Phoenix and humans, it's like these decks are not going to stumble. And I actually think it is more interesting if they do stumble at least a little bit rather than just having, you know, close to perfect draws every time. And obviously that's a little hyperbolic or whatever, but you know what I mean? Uh, Tron is going to assemble Tron by turn three, a high percentage of the time and basically turn four at the latest. And I would like to see that fail rate actually just be a little bit higher than what the London Mulligan was offering. What do you think about different Mulligan rules for different formats? I mean, what was your experience with London Mulligan and limited? I have to assume it's a pretty large net positive there. It is. Uh, I, I see how it's hugely problematic in modern, although I will admit I'm having a hard time understanding how much of what I saw was a result of London Mulligan and how much of it was a result of London Mulligan plus perfect information about what your opponent is playing. Because those yeah. two in combination kind of get bonkers. No, that is that is absolutely true. And that was a thing that I was worried about, certainly going into this tournament, was that there are too many variables introduced at once. So it would be difficult to actually make informed conclusions. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that. They did have us track like how many times we mulliganed, who was on the play, who won and stuff like that. So I think that they're going to be looking at that data, which I do think is a good thing. And uh, it was not a thing that I saw many people talk about at all. So uh, just know that that is coming. But given the buzz around the event, I feel like the vast majority of people who were in attendance actually did like it. And based on that, uh, unless the numbers are just completely out of whack that I would expect it to just be here to stay, even though I think that there is a world in which you could have different mulligan rules for different formats. It's like separate ban lists and, you know, cards being legal, sets being legal, stuff like that. Like there is a cost to having different formats and different rules mm-hmm. attached to them and everything. But in this case, it's like if if you're really striving to get new magic players playing draft or standard at that point, you can be like, oh, also there is modern. This is the difference of you know, modern from this. It's not like someone sits down and necessarily tries to learn everything all at once, right? Like, I think that's just too overwhelming. So if you're doing a good job at steering people in a direction, I think that separate rules for those formats could just be fine. That's where I'm at now too. My, My first instinct was one of repulsion. Like, oh no, everything has to be the same. Why would you have different mulligan rules? But when you actually think about it, like you have to learn so much new information to pick up those older formats anyway that I don't think it's really a cost to say, okay, look, the mulligan rule is different. Do you get it? Yes. You take two seconds to explain it and it becomes very clear. And does that create like design concerns? I don't really think so. I don't think that complicates things from a design perspective. I think it's just like, this is a quirk of the format and you get a little bit less consistency in your mulligans because of the type of decks that are inclined to exist in these formats and how much they can potentially benefit from these aggressive mulligan uh, upgrades. So that would be my approach right now. I think for standard, limited, London Mulligan, uh, pretty great. I think it does do a good job of minimizing non-games. As far as modern and older formats go, I'm actually not convinced that's the case because you have such reliable access to the cards that actually institute the non-games. I mean, we're talking about the Bioform combo, right? Can that deck even exist if the London Mulligan isn't a real thing? I'm not sure. I, I don't know right now. But it's certainly way easier for that deck to exist if the London Mulligan is around. Same thing with like the Eldrazi decks and Degenerate Chalice decks. And you just saw the success of humans. 
humans getting to find the card it needs for a matchup is such a huge get for that deck. And that's especially where things got problematic in conjunction with open deck lists. I think one of the reasons why Amulet had a really tough pro tour was the open deck list thing more than the London Mulligan thing. It was just that you are vulnerable to certain cards from your opponent when they know your strategy. And so many things in modern do not line up well against Amulet. But when you can, you can look for the specific pieces that do, that deck has a much harder time finding victories. So I'd like to see a tempered approach to this. I don't just want a full-scale rollout. We're on London Mulligan right now. What do I think is going to happen? I think we're probably just getting the London Mulligan wholesale. That's yeah, I, I do too. One of the things that is kind of messed up though is we already do this. We already have separate mulligans for different formats. Like I, I believe Commander has a free mulligan. I know that 2HG has a free mulligan. And I think people just like give that a pass because it's like more of a casual format or whatever. But regardless, like if they play 2HG and then they play standard, like they, they have to mm. learn the difference, right? Yeah, and yeah, for sure. People are just kind of giving it a pass because, you know, they don't consider those to be real formats or whatever. But like those are formats that people play in mass. So they matter. They matter just as much as any other format, regardless of if it's like a Grand Prix format or MC format or whatever. So don't try and tell me they're like, oh, we can't do separate mulligans for different formats when you already do it. Right. And there's also just differentiating points of like the early game experience, like for existence in older formats, you have turn zero actions, which don't happen in the existing formats, but you just adapt. You figure that out. That's part of the format. You stop and let your opponent do their turn zeros. It's really not that hard once you understand their existence and, you know, know that we're dealing with some different contexts. So yeah, I'm with you. I I think this is the way to go. Uh, It shouldn't reach any further back than standard. It gets a little problematic in eternal formats, but we'll see what happens in the next few weeks, few months. I don't know exactly what our timetable is, but I'm sure we'll hear something soon enough. Yeah, I don't know. I I think certainly the combination of like arena hand smoothing plus London Mulligan is just like it's it's going too much in the way of removing variants from magic, which you know, might be a good thing for me or whatever, but I I think it's worse for the game as a whole. Oh yeah. Uh, Look, variance is the reason magic has found success as much as you hate it. Mana screw and mana flood have been what has kept this game alive for 20 plus years. It is essential to the fabric of the game. The fact that good players can lose bad players can win. So, so important. And you only want to do so much to kind of tweak that before you do some real damage to the game. And I don't think we're on the threshold of doing damage to the game. I don't want to be hyperbolic. No, of course uh, not. But it is an important part, and I think it's always worth highlighting how important the variance inherent in the mana system and the mulligan system is. Yep, sign set. That's game. Let's see. Search. All right. Clicking. I hit, I hit buy it now. Nothing's happening. I will take two, please. Oh, you can get two? Yeah. All right. Check out. All right. We're kind of stuck at checkout. Waiting. 
I'm trying to update my quantity. It's not working. Nothing is working. Uh, it is I think a- I'm getting close. I have like a, I'm, I'm, I have a PayPal window open. Oh, you're farther than I am. I have a yeah. spinning spinning ball of doom. All right, let's see. Confirm and pay. Spinning ball. Thanks, your order was placed. Estimated I don't believe delivery, it. Thursday, May 9th. Woo! All right, I'm adding my address. Is Jerry going to get his Mythic Edition? Listeners sit on the edge of their seat. Oh, I have to log into my PayPal. Oh, good God. You've ruined everything, Jerry. You're so close. You're right there. You remembered, which is really the hardest part of this entire battle. Like, I'm pretty impressed we actually got to this step even in the first place. Because I didn't with the last Mythic Edition. Dude, I don't know any of my passwords. This is the worst. (laughs) Good luck.